Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Hugh Osborne and as always I'm joined by Andrew Rushby and Hannah Wakeford. Um, So in this episode we're going to be asking the question, how big can an exoplanet be? Um, Because this is something, you know, I've I've seen some misconceptions and there's a lot of different problems with this question that we can go into. you know, what is what does being big mean? What is size? You know, we can talk about the biggest planets. We can talk about the smallest planets maybe as well. Um, but I think this is this will be an, an interesting discussion just to talk about exactly how big can, can exoplanets get um, and what we mean by that. So I guess the first thing to talk about is what do we mean by size, right? That's That's the key kind of point here and the thing that often gets confused because we have two ways of defining how big something is. You know, is it heavy mm. or is it large in volume? So that tends to be the problem with a lot of exoplanet discussions is that you'll hear or you'll read that this planet is the biggest, you know, biggest planet or in this bracket or whatever. But that might mean mass or that might mean radius. So um, and, and we could we, those are basically independent measurements that we have to do for exoplanetary systems um, in order to get either the mass or the radius. And sometimes if we're lucky, we get both, but not always. Well, speaking of those that mass and that size, if I said to you, this is a really big planet. Immediately, Andrew, what are you thinking? Are you thinking mass or radius? I think I'm thinking radius, right? And I wonder if there's a there's there's perhaps like an observational uh, technique bias there, perhaps which we can come into later. But I think yeah, if, as you just said that, I, I was picturing uh, a disk of a planet in front of a star. Is is how I was thinking about that in terms of size. Because I always think of if I say something is really really big, I think of it as as an area, I think of it mm. as a, as a, a radius mm-hmm. rather than something really really massive. I kind of use that distinction. I do wonder, and I have noticed, like exactly what he was saying. That is a big language difference when we're talking about these kinds of planets. Hugh, when you when you say those words, which ones are you thinking in your head when you're saying them? Yeah, I mean, when I think big, I think radius as well. And I think you know, if someone handed you a, a gold coin and ask you if it was big, you know, you would probably say it's not, even though it's heavier than, you know, a tennis ball, whatever. So, um, so I think that's, that is the problem. But I, I think, I mean, for us, for, for exoplanets, right, what is really important is the mass, because um, everything is basically defined by the mass. And, and the definition of planets, of what is a planet and what isn't a planet, is defined by the mass. So how much, you know, how many atoms are in that that sphere rather than you know how much size does that sphere take up and i think you've touched on something important there what is the definition for a planet so i kind of want to jump in here right at the beginning and clear something up uh and that unfortunately has to always start with the international astronomical union's definition of what a planet is (laughs) and i think we can immediately agree that this is completely and utterly um not applicable because the first thing it has to do is orbit the sun so none of our exoplanets are planets because they do not orbit the sun so first off we've ruled that out so none of them are planets in the first place so 
We can say that with confidence. Thank you, IAU. <laughs> they're exoplanets. They're different. You know, they've got three letters in front. They're exoplanets. <laughs> so uh, the IAU's definition was actually changed in 2006. And it set out like three criteria that you had to conform to to be called a planet in our solar system. First, that it orbits the sun. So it has to be orbiting around the star rather than orbiting around a planet like a moon would. It has to have sufficient mass to assume a surface, like a round shape. So it has to be round. It can't be knobbly. It can't be bobbly like the moons of Mars, for example, are really misshapen. They're not spherical. They're not big enough for the gravity to pull them in in all directions towards the centre, making them spherical. So they have to be massive enough. This is where the mass comes in, in this definition, to pull gravity towards the centre and make their surface spherical. And they have to have cleared out their neighbourhood around their orbit. So in their orbit around their star, they have to have cleared out all of the big things in that orbit. They have to have either thrown them out of that orbit or attracted them to them, bringing them into that planet. So that, again, talks about mass. None of these are talking about their size. They are all talking about the mass of the planet because to clear out your neighbourhood, your gravity has to be stronger than anything else in your orbit. So actually, the definition, while the first point I completely disagree with, they're orbiting around the sun, I think it just needs to orbit around a star for it to be a planet. It was just such a, such a simple change. Yeah, it would have been a simple change. And in 2006... I don't get it. We would have known this. Um, yeah, I, I really don't either. Because they must have known this was going to be a, a contrary... And I assume it's a panel that's that's come up with this definition. It's a it's a voted system. So the definition is, is put together. So the IAU put together this definition. Um, and a big group of people come together to work out that definition. And then it's put to a vote to all members of the IAU to vote whether or not this should go ahead. So it was, like, hugely, widely agreed on. But... The key thing is that this is the mass that we're talking about. So when we're talking about sizes of things, the mass is, as Hugh said, the most important. Yeah, so, so there is actually, the IAU has a working definition of what a planet is that's been updated since 2006. Uh, it hasn't been voted on, I don't think, which is why it's not in the official rules. But but that is is much more clear about <laughs> orbiting stars, brown dwarfs or stellar remnants. So uh, anything, anything star-like in the universe. But it does exclude... You know, free-floating planets then, or rogue planets, which are apparently yes. not planets, yes. I guess. Yeah. That is true. So one of the things that was missing in the three points that, that Hannah mentioned there was um, basically an upper mass limit for planets. Um, and so we kind of know intuitively that this must exist, right? So so um, the more mass, the more gas, hydrogen, helium, you throw onto an object, um, the bigger it gets. And eventually it's going to become something like a star. And what really differentiates a star and a planet is the fact that in the core of a star, there is fusion going on. So there's nuclear fusion. Some of the atoms within that, some of the hydrogen atoms are being combined together to form larger atoms and producing energy. So that is why the sun shines, but you know Jupiter and Earth, they don't shine in some respect. So at some point, you keep adding mass to, um, to a planet and eventually it becomes something like a star. It starts nuclear fusion in the core so that is really the, the the kind of reason that mass is so important for um for defining planets um it is a bit weird so so currently the the mass uh upper limit for a planet is about 13 jupiter masses so something at you know 12.9 jupiter masses all of the um the hydrogen helium in that sphere is effectively inert it's not combining into um into into other elements it's not performing any nuclear fusion 
it's just going to cool down through you know the the universe and, and never really you know come together and make any energy and there's something at 13.1 jupiter masses is um what we call a brown dwarf so in this in these kind of stars although they're kind of more like failed stars because they're not themselves combining hydrogen atoms together to form heat all they can do is they can combine heavier elements so things like deuterium which is like a you know a hydrogen atom with an extra neutron in um, so in these cases brown dwarfs can actually very very slowly um, combine deuterium in their cores to form heavier elements uh, helium and lithium um, and so this you know th this might not produce very much energy some of the coolest brown dwarfs are only the temperature of earth um, but but it's enough to to be classed a different object even though the difference between something at 12.9 and 13.1 jupiter masses you know you, they, they would probably look identical in terms of their radius and their mass and their temperature um, but one of them we call a planet and one of them we call a brown dwarf and actually i think jumping in there that that limit isn't actually a hard limit and we don't really know where it is um exactly yeah. so that kind of that 13 that 12.9 13.1 could actually depend on the material that, that it's made up of so if this uh brown dwarf or this planet is forming out of much much more heavier material so this will be material that's been formed later in the universe so something that has more heavy elements in it for example then that might require a much, much lower mass limit for it to start burning deuterium because it's all about the pressure. So the heavier the elements you use to make up your initial object, the, the more dense you can pack them because the, the heavier they're pulling on gravity and the hotter you can get the core. And the heat is the important thing. It's all about the pressure that you can exert, yeah. which heats something up and that causes this fusion. So if you've got heavier elements in your, in your object, you might be able to start this this process at a lower mass than something that is purely made up of hydrogen and helium. So it's actually thought that earlier in the universe, you can have things that were much, much more massive before you reach this kind of limit than later in the universe, when we've created through stars and supernovae and other events, mergers, for example, of neutron stars, these much, much heavier elements. So there's actually also a time critical axis on this as to where that line is but right we're still trying to figure that out and i think that comes from the formation processes as well so one of the things that hugh you were talking about is that star formation process where gas cow collapses down whereas a planet formation process we think actually happens from the bottom up where you build up these rocks and then gas comes on top of it so there's also big questions as to to how that happens and whether that forms a distinction as well Right, exactly. Because so so how Earth formed from these little pebbles gradually accumulating into planetesimals, so kilometer size, kind of like moonlets, and then those colliding together and forming Earth. You know that that process can form gas giants. So you can eventually collide enough rocky material together that you get a big core, so ten or twenty times the size of the Earth, which is big enough then to start pulling gas from the the forming kind of cloud around the the star. Um, but that process, because of the way it works, the way you pull cloud, pull gas from the disk, you can basically never create something that that is more than 13 Jupiter masses. So everything that forms from core accretion, this process of bottom up, you know, forming planets is is always going to be a planet, whereas um, brown dwarfs effectively have to be formed from another another angle so another way and this tends to happen more like how stars form as you said so more like gas collapsing down 
um, uh, onto, you know, without, without a, a core per se, just collapsing in a gas cloud and forming, um, forming a, a kind of growing ball of, of gas and dust within that. Yeah, so when we're talking about that kind of mass range of how, how massive can a planet be, rather than asking the question how big can a planet be to avoid that, that ambiguity, how massive can a planet be? There really is this fundamental upper limit that we're still trying to explore, but theoretically is around that 13 Jupiter mass limit. Yeah, but I think it's important to say that no planet can orbit a star which is um, less massive than itself. You know, everything that is, you know, over 13 Jupiter masses-ish is a star. And, and everything that, that, um, that, you know, is less than 13 Jupiter masses is a planet. So there's no way you can have a, a planet more massive than a star, which is sometimes that, you know, people get a bit confused looking at, oh, we've got this, you know, this huge um, planet because it's big in radius. And it's bigger in radius than some of the smallest stars that we know about. But that's only true in radius. It's never true in mass. Yeah, and um, I think that kind of comes to another thing about the radius being something that is quite hard to, to picture. Is that Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system, hydrogen helium dominated, 11 times the radius of the Earth, is actually about the same size as most small stars. So Jupiter is kind of this perfect balance in size between the amount of material that you have and the, the outward pressure and the inward pressure. So if you keep adding material to Jupiter, it actually would get more massive, but it wouldn't get bigger in radius. Yeah. In fact, there's a weird thing that happens. They actually shrink, right? So, so bigger um, objects, so brown dwarfs, tend to be smaller than Jupiter, which is crazy. I never, I didn't realize this when I started out. So, so there's not a linear increase in mass and radius from, you know, something that's a planet to something that's a star. It's very kind of weird. You have to, it's hard to get your head around this, but um, in terms of mass, there is, it's a linear increase, but in terms of radius, you can add more material and get a smaller radius. Because that's, that's another weird thing I, I feel with, um, with Jupiter. So you mentioned Jupiter there. Jupiter is a, is a cold, um, Jovian planet, so you know a cold gas giant, and it tends to to you know all of the gas giants that are far from their star will be about the same radius of Jupiter for the same reasons that, that Hannah mentioned there. But when you get a gas giant that's close to its star, then this weird thing happens where um, where the starlight, so the the flux and the energy that the the planet is receiving from the star, um, somehow puffs up the atmosphere sometimes twice the radius that you would expect um, from just this simple balance of, of internal pressures that we get for, for Jupiter. Um, so, um, so some of the largest ra you know, radius exoplanets, they're more than twice the radius of Jupiter. And this is it's kind of not quite understood yet, but we know that it must be because of the energy from the star that is being dumped in the atmosphere and, and the outer layers of these, these hot planets that are, that are close to their star. So we're talking about planets that are, you know, a thousand uh, or two thousand or three thousand kelvin in in temperature so these um just from the the flux coming from the, the the star they orbit they they have temperatures more closer to like brown dwarfs and stars than they do to planets like the earth um so that's these are kind of weird objects but the, the inflation is a kind of weird thing that that happens that means that you know it that we get these extreme radius planets close into their stars yeah and and one of the really interesting things about these planets uh are the fact that their masses aren't normally that that big. Right. These are low-mass planets, which means they're incredibly, incredibly low density. So, of course, 
we as astronomers came up with a very catchy name to describe them, super puffs. So these super puffs. I, I, I do like that. I really don't. I don't know why. You really just... don't like the super puff? I mean, it sounds like a breakfast cereal. Come on. It does sound like a breakfast it cereal. It does. That was my first thought as well. <laughs> but it, it kind of, we've seen puffy planets, which is we would call low density planets. So again, it's all to do with this temperature is really, really key here because the temperature gives the energy to the gas and the more energy the gas has, the more air volume it takes up. So the more volume it's taking up, the bigger our planet is. And as long as that's still kind of gravitationally held on by the mass of the planet, then it is still a bound atmosphere. And when we're talking about these really, really highly inflated planets, we're often talking about some very, very low mass ones. So one of the biggest that has been found, and I say biggest, I mean the largest in radius, uh, is, is HAP P67b, which is about twice the radius of Jupiter, but it's only 0.3 of its mass. So it's a really low mass compared to Jupiter, but really, really massive in terms of its size, in terms of its radius, because it's this super puff. It's, its atmosphere is thermally heated and there's some mechanisms going on where we are trying to understand whether it's, you know, the heat from the star being trapped in the planet's atmosphere or internal heat from the formation of the planet and its migration through its system. There's a huge number of mechanisms involving this thermal energy to cause the atmosphere to be so puffy and it's not the only one we've seen quite a lot of these super puffs now these really yeah. low density planets and we're still trying to understand them there's actually a couple of really good uh, and interesting james webb programs to observe their atmospheres in the coming years so hopefully we'll learn more about them but these are kind of go against our ability to kind of describe these planets these are the ones that come up when you look at the media what's the biggest planet oh mm -hmm. there's this planet that's two times the size of jupiter and we're like but it's not it's actually really small uh, in, mass. in mass. I think it's worth taking a point here. We haven't really talked about how we know the masses of these exoplanets. And I think that's an, a, key, mm. a key thing we should, we should um, add to this discussion. It's about how, how we can actually know how big a planet is in both radius and mass. Um, so there's, as far as I can tell, there's, there's four ways you can basically estimate the mass of a planet. Um, but only, only a couple of these are really useful. So, <laughs> I mean, so the, the, the most, um, common way of getting the mass of a planet is through radial velocity. So this is, um, so, so radial, it being the, the motion towards or away from us. Um, so we, we, we can basically use the spectrum. So the color of the star, if we split the light of a star into its colors, we get a barcode because there are certain elements and molecules in the atmospheres of stars, which absorb the light at a specific wavelength. And this is really useful because it gives us this really kind of defined barcode pattern of lines that we can easily watch move around. So this motion is basically due to the Doppler effect. So as, as, as happens when a police, uh, police car passes you, the siren decreases in... in, um, in pitch. Pitch. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. <laughs> I, I'm not a musician. Uh, so as, as happens... <laughs> As happens when a police car passes you, the, the siren decreases in, in pitch. And the same happens when there's motion on a star. The light coming towards you is decreasing in... No, it's increasing. The light coming towards or away from you is moving in pitch, effectively. It's moving in wavelength. And we can see this motion in the spectra, in that barcode of lines. And that motion is due to the gravitational influence of a planet around the star. Um, so there's effectively... Uh, the star and the planet are both orbiting a centre of mass... 
and that means that the star is performing a slight wobble for every large orbit that the planet uh, the planet does. The other three ways are basically to use gravitational microlensing, and this is kind of an out there way that uses the the general relativity um, technique, where you know everything, uh, every massive thing can be a lens for light um, through the, the curvature of space time around. Um, mass and so if you have a distant star and you have some masses passing in front of that distant star then the, these masses lens the light and depending on what the configuration is and the, what the masses are you can you can you get different signals in the data so effectively if there's a planet or a few planets even uh, orbiting a star that pass between you and some distant light source then you get this uh, intricate pattern in the in the light curve in the, in the light that's coming from that distance star as it's lensed and that tells you about the planets and their masses you can also use uh timing so if you have some regular signal from a star or, or a planet um, then changes in the, the timing of that signal of that event uh, must be due to motion of the object and a bit like how we said in radial velocity the motion of the the star can be due to uh, the gravitational pull of a planet around it. That's true for timing as well. So, so in the case of pulsars, which which emit these very regular um, pulses at you know kind of a second timescale, um, the motion of the the pulsar, the kind of change in timing of the pulsar, told us that there were planets orbiting it in 1992. So those were the first planetary system found. You know, uh, circumbinary planets where you have a pair of stars being orbited by planets. Those can also be moved around, and in the eclipses that you see on the the inner stars, they um, they move in time due to the influence and the gravitational pull of the planets around. And then planet transits themselves can be used to do this. So um, so planetary transits are usually you know very regular, um, but sometimes they get uh, the planets themselves are being pulled and pushed around by the influence of other planets in the system, and that changes the timing of these transit events. So when the planet crosses its star. Um, so, um, all of that to say that, um, we have, we have multiple ways of measuring the mass, um, from, from these planets, but not all of these are very useful, um, because sometimes we have, you know, an idea of the mass, but not the mass, um, itself. So in the case of radial velocity, even though we measure, um, the, the push and pull of a planet, and that can tell us how massive it could be, we don't actually know the, uh, the angle of the planet. So we don't know whether it's, um, orbiting in a way that's kind of directly towards and away from us in like an edge-on system, or it's orbiting, you know, face-on, where it's it's only the push and pull of the planet is only like um, very slightly in our direction. And so that would be a much more massive planet. Um, one of the ways that, or basically the only way that we break that is is to have transits. So if we know that the planet is transiting, um, which gives us the radius because, you know, the um, the bigger the planet is that the that, that, blocks out the starlight um the, the bigger the, the deeper the dip we get in the transit and so we can measure how how big a planet is based on how deep the transit is relative to the size of the star of course yes yes so when we have um both transits and rvs that's basically the perfect kind of coordination because we get both a mass and we get because we know exactly what um angle the orbit is on we no longer have this kind of oh maybe it's a it's a more massive system that's kind of inclined um, and we get radius as well. So that's that's really the key, um, the main way that we know the sizes of exoplanets in both radius and mass is through the, the combination of these two. And it seems then that if we had both of those measurements, then we could uh, compute a density and figure out what that planet is made out of, right? Simple, straightforward. Why aren't we doing this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, well, I, so you, you can definitely get a density, and we do that a lot. But the, the step of going from a density to exactly what this planet is made out of, exactly. that is a very difficult step because there are lots of ways you can combine material, you know, you know water, rock, iron, um, gas, to make the same mass and, and radius. And that kind of takes us to the, the fact that we've got our mass and our radius and we've now got to think about what does that actually mean for these planets? Because we can go right back to our question of, of how big can a planet be? You can break that down into how big fundamentally can a planet be, which we've discussed already in terms of going up to the 13 Jupiter masses and down to the, the IAU's definition of whether or not it can be spherical and clear out its orbit. But we can break that down into how big can a terrestrial planet be, a rocky planet? How big can a gas giant be? We've kind of covered that. And then the question is, how small can a gas giant be? What's the lower limit of that? And what's the upper limit of a terrestrial rocky planet? So there's actually this middle ground, which we're starting to really discover through exoplanets, which we don't have covered in our solar system, about what are the limits, the lower limits of a gas giant and what are the upper limits of a terrestrial world? Which is a, an area of, um, of undergoing research, right? It, it seems like a solution to that, or at least a, a paucity of uh, objects which might suggest some sort of transitionary region is coming is becoming clear. And yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's somewhere between 0.6 and, uh, 1. 6 and 1.8 Earth radii, somewhere in, in that range where things start becoming less rocky and maybe a little bit more gassy. Is that, is that still correct? Yeah, that's so this is known as the radius valley. So there is a distribution of planetary sizes. And when I say sizes here, I mean radii. This isn't <laughs> in the mass. This is this is measured in the radius of the planets. I guess after this discussion, we now always have to specify what we're talking about. Right. Because then otherwise we're just going to be as bad as, you know, <laughs> yeah. just giving a number when we're talking about size. So when you look at the the exoplanets that have been discovered by Kepler on orbital periods of less than 100 days, you can draw a histogram, you can draw uh, buckets of sizes and say how many planets are in this size range, how many planets are in this size range. And if you draw that out over some nice narrow bins, you start to see that there is a large number of these planets which are around 1.6, 1.5 times the radius of the Earth. And then it drops off quite rapidly down to about 1.7, 1.75 radii of the Earth. And then it increases rapidly again to about 2.2 Earth radii. And actually, the number of planets in that portion of the histogram between about 2 and 4 Earth radii is where we see the most number of planets that have been discovered. And these have been kind of dubbed the, the mini Neptunes. These are called that because Neptune is four times the radius of the Earth. So they're smaller than Neptune. But there is this valley and it's called a valley rather than necessarily a gap because there are some planets in that range. There are still some there at the bottom of that valley. But there's so few compared to either side of it in that what we call the super Earth, these giant, what we think would be perhaps rocky planets, and then the mini Neptunes, what we think would be gaseous planets, planets with like dominant hydrogen helium atmospheres. There is a dearth, there is, a, there is an absence of these worlds in between the two sizes. And that's really fascinating because that's something that 
not only do we not have a super earth or a mini neptune in our solar system playing about this all the time we had no idea there was this continuum across the middle where there suddenly just disappears i mean there's no there's no chance that's some sort of observational bias or artifact right that's a that's a, a re- representative sample that we're now seeing some some interesting uh, distribution there's some there's certainly a limit to um, how big you can have a terrestrial planet i think that's clear because you know the, the more you grow just pure rock or whatever um from from you know pebble accretion you know whatever whatever formation mechanism forms terrestrial planets you you start growing a larger larger terrestrial planet at some point it's big enough that it's going to pull it's you know the gravity is so strong it's going to start pulling gas in from elsewhere uh, and gas that's already on the planet can't escape because the gravity is so strong so so certainly it's 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 obvious that there should be a transition somewhere um, in the case of the Kepler planets we think it's also assisted in some ways by the star so mm-hmm. this we see this radius valley very close to the star you know in periods of under 100 days because what's happening is that um, even some of the the mini neptunes the things with with gas on them they're effectively being evaporated so that even though they they, they formed with some gaseous kind of layer um, they're close enough to their star that the star is blowing away that, that hydrogen and helium and leaving it to be this this kind of baked uh, terrestrial core. Um, so so there's certainly some influence of okay we see we find close in planets uh, a lot more easily so we we find this um, radius valley um, a lot more strongly maybe than we would at longer distances. But um, but I think it's clear that there should always be a, a, a transition between rocky and and gassy worlds. And one of the things that you can look at is the fundamental ability for that planet to hold on to hydrogen and helium gas. So when we're adding hydrogen and helium gas to something, we're we're turning it into essentially what we would call a gas giant. Um, But the Earth and and other similar-sized rocky bodies haven't been able to hold on to their hydrogen. And that's a combination of the gravity of the planet and the thermal energy. So the hydrogen is moving around. It's very, very light. It's the lightest of all gases. So it needs to be held onto really tightly for it to stay there. So you need a higher gravity. So these larger planets, we expect to have this more massive, this, this larger gravity, which would be able to hold onto this hydrogen and helium. So there's going to be like this fundamental limit. But again, Another thing that I said there is thermal energy, this temperature. So temperature plays an important role. The hotter your planet is, the more easily more the, the hydrogen's moving around more, it's got more energy, so it can escape because it's got an escape velocity that is higher. So if you've got something that's close to the star, so we're looking at these planets in 100-day orbits, they're close to their star. They're, they're relatively hot compared to, say, you know, the Earth or Venus or, or the solar system planets in terms of their absolute external temperature from their energy from their star, that hydrogen to hold on to that, to be big enough for it to to appear in this mini Neptune range, they still need to be gravitationally holding onto it tight enough. So they still need to be fairly massive as well as large in radius. So this terrestrial limit might depend on temperature, but it's still fundamentally likely to be less than 1.7 Earth radii because of that. And I guess that maybe that is a is a a useful segue to maybe thinking, breaking down that question even a little bit more um, and how big could a potentially habitable, in quotes, planet be, right? We've discussed the, the potential maybe terrestrial limit, but what might be some of the factors that may affect the habitability of a planet uh, as influenced by its mass or its its radius? 
Um, so I guess as we've obviously we've already touched on, right? There's um, atmospheric uh, processes that are absolutely going to be important, and has already mentioned uh, the importance of you know that the, the temperature uh, in the atmosphere and how much radiation is coming in from the star. But if you think about it from maybe the formation point. Um, of you, there's going to be a number of metals, a number of radionuclides incorporated into that planet when it's being when it's being formed, um, and that's certainly going to have, uh, you know, the larger planets are probably going to have more of those things. Um, how that then translates into some impact on habitability is a little bit more complex, right? If we think that the kind of I've called it here the geodynamic lifetime is maybe a little bit longer. If we think about the comparison, perhaps between Earth and Mars, Mars being about half the um, uh, half the mass of the Earth, no, half the radius of the Earth, um, uh, and about a tenth of the mass. Uh, it it kind of cooled, and its geo uh, geodynamo, the um, the uh, convecting materials inside its core that produced the magnetic field that might have protected its atmosphere from being eroded, uh, that kind of cooled and slowed um, and allowed. Firstly, the crust to, to, to solidify if it was in you know some sort of plate form, which maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, uh, and also allowed maybe some of the atmosphere to be stripped away, um, and also prevented maybe things from returning to the atmosphere. Right, the keeping keeping internal heat uh, in the planet, whether it's from uh, accretionary heat or from radio radionuclides, keeping that that the planet warm also keeps stuff coming out from the inside, which is often something that's forgotten but quite important. Right, it's a it's a, it's a cycle and needs to come out into the atmosphere, get maybe processed by life or, or, or photochemistry uh, and then maybe be buried uh, and then back into the planet and come back out again. So it's driving that process. And I think the larger the larger the planet, perhaps the longer that that might last for, um, which we think from a habitability point of view has got to be important. You're protecting your atmosphere, you're keeping things moving uh, geologically or geophysically, um, I guess. I guess that, that maybe then also uh, begins to impact some of the um, I don't know what you call biogeochemical or atmospheric loss processes. There, it's a little, it's a little complex in my research here. My initial thought would have been the more dense your atmosphere, you know, if you have a larger planet with, with a denser atmosphere, that might be better at protecting that atmosphere from thermal loss processes, um, and maybe have some more vigorous and interesting photochemistry going on as well. Um, if there's just, you know, more atmosphere in which to produce photochemistry. But of course, there is some. I think Hannah's going to jump in here, perhaps with a. With a counterpoint. <laughs> More atmosphere means higher pressure mm -hmm. at the surface, right? And what's the limit of pressure that is required for that, right? So we're going into a very, very different conversation here about the, the mass. Exactly. A pure habitability question, right? Um, you know, right. Pressure is, again, uh, something that's relatively understudied when it comes to uh, habitability. There has to be some limit, right? And... Um, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah it's a complex a complex question but in the past the atmospheric pressure of the earth has been been greater hasn't it indeed so the the earth alone and we've mentioned this before so if you go back to our uh, exocast 48b where we asked what's the point of the habitable zone we were talking about the earth through time and the fact that the earth has had many different kinds of atmosphere over time and that, that we can then also compare ourselves to Mars and to Venus, Venus having a 90 times the pressure at its surface and that causing huge amounts of differences uh, alone, which is just kind of the temperature also increases as you increase the pressure. So there's a, a lot of different questions that kind of come in when we start increasing the mass of something whether that's the atmosphere or the rock itself. And one of the things that I don't think we touched on earlier is that when we're talking about 
the kind of transition from a rocky world to a gas dominated world the transition is kind of used as where the mass is the dominant term so is the rock the most dominant mass is it does the rock make up more than 50 percent of the mass of the entire planet atmosphere included or does the atmospheric gases make up more than 50 percent of the mass of that planet and that's kind of still something that is really hard to know for any one planet so that's that kind of transition from a traditional rocky planet to a gas giant planet where the atmospheric mass becomes the most dominant factor in the mass of the whole planet but for these rocky worlds where we're adding atmosphere and we're getting up to that 50 percent line perhaps is that something that would be in the super earth boundary or the mini neptune boundary yeah i mean all these nomenclature we don't have solid boundaries because we just don't have the information for these planets yeah. yet right there's so much information. Yeah, well, as you said, Hugh, it, it's like, you know, a, spe- a spectrum, a linear a linear spectrum, right? And then we're just in- inserting, in some ways, maybe some artificial boundaries. I think this is a good one, right? Between the, the terrestrial and the ga- gaseous, you have a, a clear difference in the in the class of object there. But it is a spectrum, right? A gradual spectrum. And I guess yeah. it's it's at those transitions. We can say exactly the same thing for this, the lower end of the boundary from the dwarf planets through to planets and then from planets through to brown dwarf. Yeah, it's almost like the physics operating on it is all the same. <laughs> After, you know, extremely high and, and low masses excluded, of course. But it is it is interesting that there are things that do define them all as different. There are key things that do separate them. For a planet to a brown dwarf, it's deuterium fusing at the core. For a brown dwarf to a star, it's that becoming hydrogen fusion at the core. For the dwarf planet to the planet boundary, it's whether or not it's been able to dominate its gravitational orbit. But the thing is, between all of these boundary conditions, those are really hard things to measure. Yes, yeah. And they're really fuzzy as well, like you were saying earlier with, you know, a a more metal-rich planet might be 13.1%. Or no, a, a metal poor planet might be above the boundary mm. and, a, and a metal rich brown dwarf might be below the boundary. You know that one has a lot higher masses than the other, but the, you know, their definitions are different because of you know, the, the exact composition, composition of, the, of the planet or brown dwarf. Yeah, so what we're saying, it's not a size limit. It's not the... What we're saying, everybody, is the question you've been asking is wrong. <laughs> As is always the case. It's not a size limit. Seemingly simple question, incredibly complex answer, which is our favourite. Insanely complex. Right, here on the show. (laughs) But I think, I mean, so obviously it depends what you're saying. So in terms of radius, um, you know, there is is no limit in some ways as to how big a planet could be, as long as it's below 13 Jupiter masses. And I think one thing we didn't mention, you know, we talked about Hap Heath 67 earlier, which is the the biggest um, planet with both a a radius and a mass from transit and radial velocity. But we didn't talk about PDS... 70b which you know mm. everyone loves um exocup winner right was it I, I, yeah I've forgotten yeah already. yeah, <laughs> yeah. exocup winner um 2020 2020 one of our most popular exo exocup competitors of all time as well yeah yeah but so so that because it's a you know it's a very young system we're seeing these gas giants in the system there's two of them known we're seeing them in the in the process of formation they've only just coalesced from from gas and dust and so this kind of throws the whole equilibrium argument out the window and they can be enormous so because they they're still cooling down the center is still hot from this you know from just being cooked by 
by all of this, this dust being thrown together. They, they can they can be you know 30, 40 Earth radii, so three or four times the size of Jupiter. So in the case of PDS seventy B, um, we think it's about thirty um, Earth radii, so about three times the radius of Jupiter, just based on its brightness, its spectra, and you know how we theoretically think such planets cool down. Uh, so so we don't have a direct measurement of the radius yet for this planet, but we certainly think it should be way bigger than any of those inflated hot Jupiters we were talking about, um, which are, you know, 20, 20, 23 kind of Earth radii, twice the, the radius of, of, of Jupiter. So um, so for young systems, we can kind of um, picture any size radius and, and, and you could probably have it <laughs> in this cooling process. I want to make it really clear here. When Hugh is saying young for PDS-70, he's saying it's so young, the star hasn't actually technically become a star yet. Yeah. It is not even entered what we call the main sequence, which is the period of a star's life when it has fully ignited at its core and is in a stable state and will stay there for a millennia. The planet is so young, it doesn't technically have an IAU defined star yet. Ah. So it's not a planet, I guess. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of this. Just being really pedantic here. It does raise an interesting question as to when we can start calling it a planet, though. I think I think you both made good points here, right? If the star isn't formed into a star and the planet arguably hasn't finished forming, what do we call it up to this point? Well, yeah. well the thing is, we know that star is going to form into a star. We know that that star's process is going to happen. That's not something that is uncertain. So I think that because of that, we're like, in the future, we know that this is going to be the case. And therefore, it is in orbit around a self-ignited body. Then if we looked at a, circum, you know, a circumstellar disk that we'd spotted out in, the, out in the galaxy, could we then say, well, it's inevitable that this is going to form planets. We'll name a couple of them now before they fall. <laughs> <laughs> look, it's, the, it's, 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 you know, 40 AU across something. Yeah, it's no, I don't. I, that, you definitely have to cut a, draw a limit, right? But, um, but I think what I was trying to say is just, you know, if you, you can add, always add caveats. And so for the mass, there is a specific limit, but for the radius and for other, you know, density and things like that, you can always think of some special um, scenario where, where you can break what, what was thought to be a limit. I mean, another special scenario, and you kind of covered this in the updated IAU definition, is that there is a large Jupiter-sized planet that has been found orbiting around a white dwarf star, where the planet itself is actually over seven times the size of the star. The star is about the size of the Earth, and this planet is huge compared to that star because that star has ended its life in uh, and is, is in the process of, you know, not burning at its core anymore it's cooling off over time but this planet exists still because it didn't get destroyed basically somehow but that's a situation when we've got the reversal where the planet is so much more big in radius than the star right yeah yeah but not mass, not mass. But no, <laughs> definitely not the mass definitely not the mass in fact, it might even be less massive than it was before the star died because the star, the death of the star may have stripped some of the atmosphere from this planet. Yes. Another question that is planning to be answered with the James Webb Space Telescope in the coming observation cycle. <laughs> well, I, I, I apologise now for having asked a simple question and having received a very complicated answer. But yeah, as, as Andrew said, that tends to be how we, how we roll. <laughs> um, 
but I think this was an interesting discussion. I think uh, I hope that we've cleared some um, some confusion about mass and radius, and you know, added some knowledge about how we know the masses of some of these planets and and what the you know potential boundaries between our uh, super Earths and and you know Neptunes might be. Um, but I'm sure we've added some confusion as well ourselves. <laughs> Well, if you want to continue this discussion with us, then please get in touch uh, on Twitter at exo underscore cast and on our website, exocast.org, where you can find all of our previous shows as well. Don't forget to look out for our news episode later this month as well, where we'll cover three papers that have been published in the exoplanet literature in the last couple of months. You can always help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Exocast. Each coffee is just $4 and every donation over $15 will get you a shout out on the show. Thank you so much to all of our previous donations. You can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, t-shirts, stickers, mugs and more on exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. 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 Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, Chaos Test Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland, Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Burbeck University of London in the UK. Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations. Find out more at exocast.org.